I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to the premiere episode of 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. This time we're actually looking at two films, Wings and Sunrise. And I say we because I'm being joined by a guest, Mr. Trey Hooks. Thanks, Blaine. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Okay, so before we get into the films, we should probably give a little bit of a, a history of why it's 99 Years, 100 Films as the title, and how that works if we're looking at Best Picture winners. Well, the 100 films is because this is planned to be a finite podcast that will end after the 99th ceremony and 100th film is chosen, just before the 100th ceremony. And for people who are wondering why those are two different numbers, well, we're going to get into that today. Because in the first Academy Awards ever, there wasn't a single Best Picture. We had an award for Best Picture Production which was won by Wings, and an award for Best Picture, Unique and Artistic Production, which was won by Sunrise, A Tale of Two Humans. So we're going to cover both of those films in this inaugural podcast, and then unless there's a tie in some Oscar ceremony that hasn't taken place at the time of this recording, we're going to be doing one movie per podcast on a monthly basis until we've gone through the first 100 winners. So it's actually Wings as the, you know, best picture production that is usually considered the first best picture winner. And that's just because the paper-based criteria for what makes best picture that they were using beyond that was closer to the production version of the best picture category than the artistic presentation. So uh, Wings was released in 1927, directed by William A. Wellman with an uncredited assist by Harry Dabadi Darast. There was Story by John Monk Saunders, Screenplay by Hope Loring and Louis D. Leighton, and Titles by Julian Johnson, which is... It's not the setup of writing credits that we're used to seeing these days. Right. So this is actually the first year, and for a long time also the last year, that a silent film won Best Picture. And this was also in an era when the Oscars were done by season. So the eligible entries were those that were released between, I believe it was September 27 and August of 1928. It, it also wasn't the gala production that it is today. I believe this was like a five-minute radio broadcast. Yeah, and that was just for people accepting the awards. They knew in advance who was winning, so... You know, today they do the ballots, and then there's an accounting firm, which may not be replaced. This is being recorded about a month and a half after the La La Land Moonlight deal, which, if you're not familiar with it, we'll get to that in a few dozen months. But, yeah, we may be seeing a new accounting firm with the final tallies. In this era, people submitted the votes... The winners were told, hey, you won. Please come to this dinner. We're going to broadcast the actual handing out of the awards on the radio at that time. All right. So 
basic rundown of this one in terms of plot. World War I is in effect. A couple of men who are interested in the same woman go to serve, and they end up serving side by side, become good friends. The woman has made her choice, even though the man she did not choose doesn't quite realize that. And through a series of, you know, unlikely but not you know, totally implausible circumstances, that ends up getting dragged on for years. And, you know, in the end, not everyone comes back from the war alive and in one piece. That's the, the basic rundown. I don't want to get too much into detail at this point. We'll leave that for the discussion. So, Trey, when did you first see this movie? I first watched it probably a couple of weeks to a month ago when we discussed it on Facebook. I, I owned a copy, and it was sitting in my list of silent films to watch. And when we began discussing it, I decided to pull the trigger. Yeah, okay, so that was... It's similar to me. I bought it as soon as it came out on DVD because, hey, the first Best Picture winner. And I'm not a fan of war films in general, so I just didn't get around to it. Actually, I think the main reason I got around to it is because HMV is closing. So that's, at least at this time, it's a retailer that, like I said, they're doing their final closeouts now, selling off the furnishings as well as whatever product they still have on the shelves, which is, frankly, pretty lackluster at this point. But their bread and butter for years was having those titles that nobody else had in stock. But they were also had a reputation for charging prices that indicated they knew it's us or nobody. So they could get away with some pretty significant markup because they would have those obscure titles. And some of that was to make it worth their while to stock the obscure titles. They have been on a downslide for as long as the online retailers and online streaming have been climbing. They took the biggest hit, and because they never looked at hardware, it was all about, you know, music and videos, CDs, records, LPs. They just can't compete with their traditional pricing in this day and age. Their pricing was improving over the last few years, but apparently not enough to keep them around. Uh, they died long ago, but my college years were working for a retailer very similar to HMV here in the state, Suncoast Motion Picture Company. So I, I know the model well. Anyway, they were doing that, and when they announced they're going out of business sale, I figured they've got the stock. This is probably the most likely time for me to complete my Best Picture collection for a reasonable budget. So that's what I did, and that's what I came up with the idea. Well, you know, now that I've got all of these... I have found that producing podcasts is a good incentive for me to sit down and read or watch or do whatever I want to do with the stuff that I'm owning. So hence came the idea for the podcast. And when Trey said, hey, if you're looking for someone to discuss it with you, for me, that was enough of a nudge to change it from the podcast idea to actually making the thing happen. So Wings ended up actually ended up winning for both the Best Picture Production, as we mentioned, and also the best effects in engineering effects. I'm just going to pull up the ceremonies here because these were the 1929 was the actual ceremony year for this. Now, this one production up against The Racket and Seventh Heaven. Are you familiar with either of those? I am not. Okay. Nor am I. So... In this case, we'll just give the Academy the benefit of the doubt and say, sure, I'll agree with their voting on that one. 
That won't be the case in some of the later years, I tell you. Right. From your perspective, Trey, what is it that you think set this apart? Why is this a film that deserves that best picture production category? I think it's a few things. I think it's the story and content and the way that it was told. This has an epic feel to it, though not necessarily an epic runtime. And it can't mm -hmm. be undersold the innovation that was used for the aerial scenes that are the centerpiece of this film. I know that's what led to the Best Effects Engineering Award, and I think it also played a part in the Best Picture Production Award. Yeah, I would agree that what they were doing with cameras here might seem a little goofy to modern audiences, but it was incredibly innovative for 1927. Having cameras moving on swing sets, for example. So you've got people riding on the swing, and the camera's riding with them. They're mounting the cameras on planes and actually basically acting out the dogfights by having the planes in the air doing this. this. It was a substantial production. So when you've got the production side, which is just the technical level, how you put the movie together, this is actually a great example from the era. It is, and it was a complex production. Uh, I, I believe it took somewhere like nine months to film which was an extremely long film shoot for the era. And it has to be understood. The concept of flight was still relatively new at this point. The, the film set in World War I, and World War I was the first conflict where aircraft was really brought to bear from a technology perspective. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, playing started as reconnaissance, so it ended up with, you know, people actually... It, it started with just planes flying over the enemy lines to get a feel for, you know, where the enemy placements were. Pilots started bringing up their pistols because they were tired of getting shot at and wanted to be able to shoot back. And then they just kept building until they ended up mounting them on the aircraft themselves. Right. And you can tell the love of aviation that the filmmakers had. William Willman himself was a pilot during World War One. Uh, Richard Arliss, one of the um, two leads, I don't believe he saw any actual combat, but he too was a pilot during World War One. Yeah, it, it was a different era. It feels like, you know, from World War One really until the start of the Korean War. So just looking at World War I and II, there is a tremendous amount of you know respect for the veterans and sort of putting them up on a pedestal, treating them as the best of the best. Right. And it's it, I think these days that's not as true as it should be. I mean, I'm Canadian, so we don't have the same degree of this as we're seeing socially in the United States. But just to get in a bit of a soapbox here, I think some people are conflating their disagreement with deployment orders with the way they treat the people who are actually deployed and who voluntarily put their lives on the line for the betterment of others. I, I would agree. And that's something I don't necessarily agree with the way people have been deployed, but I've got the utmost respect and gratitude 
for the people who are out there on the lines. And that element is still there. And frankly, when you look at what was going on in World War I, and especially World War II, it's hard to come up with a good reason to object to the way the English-speaking world got involved in those wars. There, it wasn't as ambiguous as some of the later conflicts, shall we say. Sure, sure. So uh, one of the things that I want to do with each week is just take a look at how these movies have been treated over time. So I've used the IMDb advanced search feature. As I said, they're voted by seasons mm -hmm. for you know, what is eligible for the awards and what's not. And just taking a look at these movies and, you know, what's best for these years. So if we look at the best of 1927, at least according to IMDb voters, just looking at that for the course of the year, Wings actually comes in as the fourth best film, as far as IMDb voters are concerned. Now, the IMDb, keep in mind, started on Usenet in the 1980s and then moved to the World Wide Web home that most people know in the 90s. I remember when they celebrated their 10th anniversary, thinking, but the World Wide Web is only like four years old. <laughs> and they had a whole like FAQ and explanation for that. So looking at how it's settled over time, because in the IMDb votes now, these are not people coming home from the theater voting it based on that first gut reaction like we get with modern releases when we're looking at 1927 releases, this really is how people felt in the day. Or it's how they're feeling today looking back on it. So we've got some historical perspective. The number one film for the year is Sunrise, which we're going to get to later in the podcast. Number two is The Unknown. And number three is The Red Mill. Wings comes in at number four, which I think is interesting because if you look at those top four movies, we've got the winners of the two best picture categories and the other two weren't nominated for anything. I think it's a, probably a reflection of how times have changed. We're not as enamored of aviation as the public was when this film came out. Mm -hmm. it, it had the benefit of having Clara Bow in it, who at that time... Uh, for all intents and purposes, she was modern cinema's first sex symbol. But I think if you oh, yeah. cr critically analyze the film, she was somewhat tacked on. Uh, she's a little adjacent to the plot and not really heavily involved in the plot, if you will. Yeah, she's she is not treated well. She's the MacGuffin, right? She is the prize to be won. It might as well have been you know, like a medal they could pin to the chest of the pilot at the end of it. So aside from the fact that people wouldn't tune in for the, a medal that had a nude scene like they did for Clara Bowes in this one. Right. I mean, she was literally the first It girl. She was the star of the movie called It, which is, you know, long before Stephen King sort of dominated that name in the public perception and persona. It was all about being, you know, the, the sex symbol that she was here. Right. I mean, I, I guess for modern audiences, probably, if you think of the way Marilyn Monroe was perceived in the late 50s, early 60s, that was Clara, Clara Bow was that type of the 1920s. Yeah, she was one of those, you know, the pinup girls, one of the first people where people would go to the film. Audiences would come to this film just because she was in it to look at her. 
not to see your performance, not to see the way it worked out. This is also a movie that should be noted that, you know, as big as she was then, looking at the cast, the cast member that's probably best known today is Gary Cooper, who played Cadet White for all of five minutes. But they were an amazing five minutes. You can understand how his career came from that performance. Yeah, he was in there when, you know, the, the heroes that were following through this film, when they're drafted, he sort of becomes that gold standard, that intimidating level of competence that they need to aspire to, right? So he is that, that manly man with a physique they strive for who goes out and does the job and you know, does it to the best of his ability. He's that history, but he, he's that living legend that makes them go, oh, this is, you know, not just about winning the girls. This isn't like high school football. There are stakes involved. And I think it's safe to do a little bit of spoilers on a film that's reaching 100 years old. His part is five minutes long because he dies in a training accident. So it shows how death is ever present. This is not fun and games. Yeah, exactly. It really drives home. This, this is war. This is not the fictionalized version. And it's actually nice to see that in this because I find a lot of war movies from this era. Part of the reason I was turned off of them is, you know, these major war movies from early in film history don't just glorify the, the soldiers for putting their lives on the line and the act of heroism in the face of very real danger. They tend to glorify an boss at all where, you know, the main characters that you know don't tend to die on screen. If they do, it's in a blaze of glory, taking out a much larger number of the enemy than themselves. It's not training accidents. This really drives home the fact that, no, like, you, you may not be coming home. It, it feels very real to these guys. I think the other thing that at least affected my perception of it is the plot really plays like a perverse Archie comic. You know, there's this cliche, if you will, in Americana of the everyday average boy who by pluck and determination can make his way even against the more well-to-do who look down upon him. And that everyday average American type in this film is kind of a punk and a bully. Or at least that was yeah. my perception of it. David was the more nobler character than Jack. David being Richard Arlen's character who came from the more well-to-do family. Even in the way the combat's played out, you would have Jack focus solely on the target and he would go after the Red Baron type who when his gun jammed nobly lets him go while poor David's having to take on two other planes all by himself in a dogfight. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely different motivations and one of them is certainly more altruistic than the other and it's about getting the job done rather than doing it for personal glory. And I don't know, should we continue to spoil the ending? But only one of those two makes it through this war. Which, again, really helps drive home the fact that no, war isn't lighthearted fun. Right? This is, you know, it's not like the first couple seasons of TV MASH. Right. Where, right. Which a lot of veterans 
didn't like MASH because of how, you know, how focused on the comedy it was. Even though, even the first two seasons, you knew that it was life or death at the surgical tables. Even though, by the end of it, it got a lot more serious. Much less goofy. But this isn't a MASH podcast. <laughs> so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because we do have two movies to discuss this time. Sure. So did you have any other thoughts on it? Would you recommend that people track this down if they're interested and take a look at it today? Does it hold up well? I think it does. I think it does. With silent films, sometimes the amount of title cards can be overwhelming or not enough. It can be hard to track your interest. I felt William Wendell did a good job of balancing that out. The flight scenes are still amazing to watch. So yeah, I would definitely recommend it. I would too. I've heard a lot of people who won't watch silent films because they say, well, you know, they're all terrible because they didn't really know how to make movies yet. If you want to see how good a silent film can be, I would say if you want to see, you know, the strength on a production standpoint, on a technical level, this is probably the best example I've seen. And then I'd say if you want to see the best comedy, we get into The General by Buster Keaton. Right. I, I don't want to name my pick for the just the best drama from the artistic standpoint, because we do have two movies to watch this time, and I don't want to sort of spoil the whole ending. Sure. Because the next movie to discuss does fall into that category of the dr dramas here. So this is Sunrise, which was originally titled Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. I think I might have said A Tale of Two Humans at the beginning of the podcast. And this is directed by F.W. Murnau, with Scenario by Carl Mayer. Herman Suderman is the From an Original Theme By credit. And then titles by Catherine Hilliker and H.H. Caldwell. We did mention when we had these credits last time that it's just part of the silent era. I don't know if all of our listeners are familiar with silent films, so maybe we should expand on what that means. Essentially, in this time, it was... Movies were almost written like Marvel comics in the 60s, if you know about what they call the Marvel method. They started with an outline. They'd go out and film it, and then they'd write the intertitles for the actual dialogue after the fact, because when you have silent film... They didn't do subtitles, so the dialogue wasn't superimposed on the image down at the bottom. You'd see the characters perform an action, you'd see their lips move, and then it would cut to what they said, and then cut back in what they call the intertitles, because they're titles that are going in between the frames or the shots. So it's not uncommon to have something like this, where apparently Carl Mayer came up with the outline for them to film by, but then it was Catherine Hilliker and H.H. Caldwell who actually put in the dialogue to match what was going on, which actually gave them a fair amount of flexibility because they could just, you know, film two people in a living room in every combination of emotional states they could think of and then go back and fill in the details. And if they decided to go a completely different route with the film and rewrite those scenes, well, they just slapped in different intertitles and used the other footage. I think you made a great analogy there, Blaine, because in comics we often talk about writers sometimes who uh, overreach on the dialogue or the captions and overpower the art. And a silent movie can be the exact same way. The, the use of inner titles is an art form. You want them to 
explain what is going on when what is going on can't be inferred by the action and the emotion on the screen. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you have guys like Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin who were in a competition with each other to have the fewest intertitles possible and tell as much of the story purely in visuals as they could. And you can certainly see the difference if you look back at a lot of silent films between the very well-done stuff and the not-so-well-done stuff with just how many intertitles you have. You know, it doesn't matter how great the dialogue is. If you've got too many intertitles, the audience starts to say, why am I watching a movie and not reading a book? Right. It's just all text. But in any event, when we're looking at Sunrise, this is a little bit different. So it starts off with a couple who were married a few years ago, not quite as happy as they used to be, and turns out the man is having an affair. And when I refer to him as the man, that's how he's credited. The characters in this movie don't have names. The man is played by George O'Brien. The wife is played by Janet Gaynor. And the woman from the city is played by Margaret Livingston. That's who the man is having his affair with. And that affair builds to the point where the man is ready to kill the wife so that he can run off with the woman from the city. Push comes to shove, he realizes he can't do it. And the wife runs away from him. He chases her and somehow in the course of a day manages to win her back, realizes how much he really wants her and how madly in love they actually are. Only, you know, by the end of the day, they're legitimately in danger and the one from the city thinks he has killed his wife so that he can come back to her when she's lost at sea. It's... Yeah, this one is a little bit different. We'll get into that a bit more later. As we said, it was F.W. Murnau is the director, who's a man that a lot of people would know better for directing Nosferatu in 1922. Certainly not his only credit, but I think it's probably his best known work. And this movie was originally released on November 4th, 1927. So in those Academy Awards, it was up against Chang, A Drama of the Wilderness, and The Crowd, neither of which I have heard of. N neither have I. The other watermark film from this year, of course, was The Jazz Singer, but it was not up for either of these categories. No. No, it won the an honorary award for, you know, pioneering the talking picture. And The Circus also won an honorary award that was... A Charlie Chaplin film, which over time has come in... Let me see here. Oh, sorry, it's not appearing on the 1927 list, but it actually did very well. Because that came out in the early 1928, it was that part. The Jazz Singer came out at 15. And that's... I don't know if you've seen that, but... I have. It's not too germane for uh, this film. We'll probably discuss more. No. discuss it more in a future episode. Yeah. If at all, really, it, it is the first movie with synchronized sound combined with live action. Aside from that, there's not much to it. it, it it's not, and even when we say that, it is 80% silent film with mm -hmm. the sound coming in on musical numbers. Yeah, it really is about a jazz singer. He's basically on a date while in the lounge, and every time it's, he has to get up and sing and perform again, that's when it goes to the synchronized sound. I get why it was such a landmark from the audience perspective, because, hey, it's synchronized sound for the first time ever. 
Had they taken an identical script five years later and made it 100% talky, I don't know that it would have gone anywhere. Because there's not much to it aside from that novelty. Sunrise, there's a little more to it. Even if I'm not... I'm not really happy with the message that it conveys. No, the reason why I referenced Jazz Singer a little bit is it, it did overshadow uh, a technical innovation that Sunrise used, which was while there wasn't synchronized sound in the form of dialogue, there was a synchronized <laughs> soundtrack with Sunrise. It was one of the first films to use that particular innovation. Yeah, so really they didn't have microphones on set. Right. So you you couldn't hear what the actors were saying and doing, but it did come with a built-in soundtrack so that you were no longer depending on the in-theater orchestra pits. Because back in the day in silent films, some of these silent films had orchestrated soundtracks with them, but they didn't come part of the film. They would just send the music sheets so that the orchestra you're supposed to hire to be in the theater playing this music would play it. They weren't often used or dependably used because the instruments available at each theater varied wildly. So what you tended to have were local musicians who practiced a couple of different themes to associate with each mood, so happy scenes in every movie had the same music as, as each other, sad scenes in every music, movie were the same, and so forth. So Sunrise, they kind of got over that by providing the music with the film so that you know if you didn't have the synchronized sound equipment well then you didn't have to worry about it because you know you could just have the orchestra play there and it was designed so that everything you needed was there visually but if you did have the synchronized sound equipment which actually predates steamboat willie mm-hmm. steamboat willie is known for being the first with synchronized sound it's not the Fleischer Studios created it first. Steamboat Willie just popularized it with Disney. That's pet peeve of mine. The Fleischer Studios <laughs> don't get nearly enough credit for the innovations they made as I think they should. I, I would agree. But yeah, they've been they were doing synchronized sound since 1918, when they also invented the little bouncing ball for the sing-along cartoons that their synchronized sound came from. But this sort of gave theaters the option. So if you had the synchronized sound equipment, you didn't need your orchestra, and you had the score that the filmmakers wanted you to have. And where I think it lent power to Sunrise was that, in this case, it wasn't just music, but, for example, there's a scene where the couple causes a traffic jam, and you hear people hollering at them to get out of the way and the honking of the car horns, and that was something that was new to me from a silent film experience. Yeah. Yeah, it was, there were some elements of the diegetic sound. Uh, For those unfamiliar, there's two kinds of sound in film. Diegetic is sound that's in the scene, so the characters can hear that sound. And the non-diegetic sound are things like the orchestrations and the stuff the characters can't hear. So when you're watching Star Wars, your John Williams soundtrack is non-diegetic. The rest is diegetic. This is one of the first examples of diegetic sound. I mean, the jazz singer obviously had some. It was the the first live action because you could, you know, hear Al Jolson singing when his character sang. You you heard it. But this is another one of those early examples. And yeah, like Trey said, it wasn't recorded on set. They were adding it after the fact with the car horns and the 
the calling out at that point. So yeah, it's it's almost odd to me that Wings won the production award, whereas this won the artistic, because there were production elements in this that are quite valuable. There were, and I'm wondering if where they split that was, I believe this one won Best Cinematography. Let me go through. So this actually won Best Picture. Janet Gaynor won Best Actress in a Leading Role in that year. Although at those cases, or in these times, Best Actress really was for the person and not for a specific role. So she won the Best Actress Award for the work she did here and Seventh Heaven and Street Angel. So it's her work in all three films combined. And then, yeah, it did win Best Cinematography. That award went to Charles Rosher and Carl Strauss. It was also nominated for Best Art Direction. Okay. For Rokas Gilles. Because there are some extremely elaborate sets in this film, and some of the work, some of the camera work that they do was superimposing some elements, I thought, were really innovative for the time. They were, yeah. And that is probably a big part of why it won that. Although looking at the the awards, I mean, Art Direction, that one is weird. It looks like Art Direction was also by the individual because William Cameron Menzies won for both The Dove and The Tempest. Whereas for Cinematography, Rosher and Strauss won for this. And the other three nominees were George Barnes for The Devil Dancer, George Barnes for The Magic Flame, and George Barnes for Sadie Thompson. <laughs> Right, so if it was for work in the year, you would expect it to be Dave Barnes. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like that they basically decided uh, George Barnes was the best cinematographer, but best cinematography, I don't know, maybe he just split the vote by competing against himself too much. It wouldn't be the first time. Right. I believe there was one year when John Williams was nominated for four of the five awards for best original score and won zero. That tends to happen when the awards are split that way. There's the the not John Williams votes all tend to pile up in the one category. This is one I mean, the story is very well told. And it can be difficult to hold the attention of the modern audience in a silent film. They tend to pack a lot more story in because an intertitle takes much less time than spoken dialogue. And they tend to be more written for quick summaries of the conversation rather than word-by-word -word dialogue when you're reading it rather than hearing it. So I just find they, they tend to compress a little. So you'll have more plot in 90 minutes of a silent film than you will in 90 minutes of a talkie. And this is still, you know, about an hour and 40 minutes, depending on which country's cut you're looking at. Well, and the, the inner titles are used for the setup and the denouement, the middle or the second act has little to no inner titles in this at all. Yeah. And that's the one that that second act is what I find so off-putting about this film. Because it's very well made. I get why it won the artistic production award. I don't believe that any major studio would make this film today where the man tries to kill the wife and wins her back by the end of the day. And it's considered a happy ending. Oh, I, I agree. And it this will probably be said more than one time on this show, especially during the, the earlier periods. The, the sexual politics were just so completely different back then. And 
the husband in this film is an abusive brute. Not only does he cheat on his wife and consider killing her, he throttles the mistress violently both at the beginning and at the end of the film. Yeah, it's just... Th this man is a monster. This is the woman from the city just because, you know, she's saying, well, you know, kill your wife and then we can be together. Like, that's... She's not the one that performs the violent acts, but she supports any level of violence he wants to commit against the wife. Right. And it's George O'Brien plays him as a monster until there's that reconciliation in the second act. The gate that he has, he lurches and looms. He's... I mean, it reminds me of... The way he walks reminds me of the way Boris Karloff walked as Frankenstein's monster in a film that would be released four years later. So it's clearly not George O'Brien borrowing from Karloff's performance. You know, if there's any influence, it's the other way around. Interestingly enough, if this is true, because you know how some of the things are that you find on the web, it, it may do, be due to the same cause. I, I had read that... Uh, they had put weights in the soles of George O'Brien's shoes because Murnau wanted him to feel like he was weighed down by the desperation of the bad choices that he had made. And, of course, Karloff also had weighted boots in his performance as Frankenstein. So, Yeah, that could very well be it because that, that is the kind of thing Murnau would do, especially the more you hear about what he was doing in Germany. Just the fact that he made this movie, that this would be a major studio today going and trying to hire someone like Richard Linklater as a hired gun just to churn out a prototypical indie movie. Yeah, all those who said it. If they made it today, I, I can't imagine him winning our back unless they're trying to make it a horror. Yeah. like If they do this, if they take this setup and do it with a happy ending... At least the man, if not the man and the woman from the city, end up incarcerated. And the wife gets at a happy ending of her own, either realizing she doesn't need a man in her life or she just finds a more worthy man. It it would also work well, I think, with that O. Henry Twilight Zone ending. If the outcome of the storm had been different and he gets blamed anyway, I think that could have possibly worked. Though it still would have to have her be rather weak-willed in and of herself. Yeah, she is clearly the victim. And if anything, that's the most telling thing about it in terms of how society has changed since 1927. Is that audiences accepted this as a happy ending. And it shouldn't be. We're talking about a victim who tries to escape her victimizer and then falls back into the same trap. I mean, there's a lot to be said. And I think that's why this is held up. This is, as far as IMDb voters are concerned, the best film, according to their voting, from that period. On top of that, it's also number 156 in the IMDb Top 250 of all time, as of the time of this recording. It, when AFI updated their 100 best films list, I think roughly 2010 or so, it... it it also ranked on that list. I, I don't remember its ranking, but uh, so it, it's highly regarded. I, I can't say that it doesn't 
deserve it. I, I don't know if the simpler plot makes it, as wrong-headed as it may be, makes it more universal than Wings, perhaps? Yeah, possibly. It's just, yeah. It, it is an extremely well-made film. And it does provoke a powerful emotional response, which is part of what film is meant to do. I just find that the way I react to it is probably not the reaction that they got from people sitting in the auditoriums when this came out. Right. My reaction to this was just gut-wrenching when I see that she ends up back with him. And this whole village that doesn't understand the true nature of their relationship is totally behind her. Or totally behind the two of them getting back together and the support for it. He said, on screen, it plays out like a happy ending. To me, this is, yeah, th this is one of those ones where, you know, you find out that, you know, at the end of the horror movie, the real serial, serial killer is still in the house with the now the unprotected kids and babysitter. Well, well, I like that you brought up kids. There's a child in this that in no way is relevant to the plot, but it, it, he's kind of, the baby's kind of, set dressing but when you consider this is about an abusive husband that late you also have to think well what's going to happen to that child yeah they live in isolation and it's just the man the wife the child and the nanny so but at least there is a nanny because i had actually watched how much time they were spending away from home and how much time they were in the city and i'd forgotten about the nanny going who's watching the kid <laughs> right and it's right. well sorry I'm, I'm calling her the nanny she's acting like that she's credited as the maid but they do cut back to the maid checking in on the baby it's like oh right okay so the baby's not just alone at home for the past six or eight hours and i i'm assuming it's a family member because i i know that if you try to pit a, pick apart anything you will succeed but a plot element of this is that the farm is failing. So to call her the maid, uh, how are they affording a maid? So in my mind, that's like a grandmother or an aunt. Yeah, or it could be back in the day and she's just working for room and board. True, true. Yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure how they justify her, her being there. But with this story, without the maid, you can't have the baby. Because it's just unattended for far too long. And it can't be in the boat with them at the beginning or end of the film. If you lose the maid, you have to make the wife, you know, you want to keep the baby. She's just got to be pregnant with the unborn child. But I do think if you separate it from the plot, I do think there are some nice comedy beats in their mm -hmm. time in the city. I'm thinking specifically the salon and the photographer. Yeah, it's... Had you taken the second act of this, lost the abusive first act, and done this as the day they first met, he's head over heels right off the bat, she's not, and he's courting her, it plays out very, very differently, except when he gets violent with jealousy. But again, a big chunk of that second act would be fine without the context of the first act. It, it is very well made, and that is why I'm struggling with it. It's just, to me, shines a spotlight on how much society has changed and, in my opinion, improved about attitudes to this sort of thing since 1927. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So, I think we may have kind of tipped our hand on this a little bit, but 
you know, we've already talked about which movies came in well. And, you know, I'd like to, to I want to try and end off each of these podcasts with what would we have chosen as the best film of that year? And it sounds like at least of the nominees, we've only seen the two pictures that won. So if you were to go back to 1927 and lose the combined or the separate categories and combine them into a single best picture category, which would you choose as the best film of the year? Even with the difficult subject matter in today's contemporary lens, I think I would pick Sunrise. Yeah, if if I were in the 1927 society, I believe I would pick Sunrise without hesitation because we didn't understand how wrong some of what was modeled was then. Today, I might lean towards Wings, and I think part of the reason I do that is because I do really enjoy the technical production side of cinema as much as the film. But yeah, I can see, I wouldn't say the Academy made the wrong choice at the time by any means, because I mean they're voting in the context of the era. And as we'll get to later, you know, sometimes the Academy and, and Hollywood drives change. Sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes when Hollywood is driving change, the Academy doesn't recognize it. One of my all-time favorite films and a movie that is generally regarded as the best of its genre wasn't even nominated for Best Picture in its year. But we'll get to that when we get to 1968. <laughs> I'm wondering how many listeners just guessed which film I'm talking about. Right. I think that probably about wraps up our first episode of 99 Years, 100 Films. Now, this is one, actually come to think of it, a question we asked with Wings that we didn't ask with Sunrise. I should add to my outline here so it does get covered every week. Is when did you see first see this film and how were you first exposed to it? I did not even know this film existed until you had brought it up and we were discussing covering wings. So I I did a quick search and purchased it on iTunes based off of your recommendation. I'm glad I did. Yeah, that's I learned it existed earlier this year. Because I was collecting all the best picture winners. And yeah, I also picked it up on iTunes because it's relatively cheap there, at least at this time. We're recording slightly over two years before the scheduled release date. So that may change. But it's it's available right now digitally on DVD and on Blu-ray. So if you're interested, it can be found. I would I would say, though, with both of these films, I would hesitate to watch them with younger children. Wings, just because we do see some nudity from both genders. Although the, the male nudity is not designed to be erotic, it's just men getting physical exams in the background, facing away from the camera while stark naked in one scene through an open door that is sometimes closed. But Clara Bow's scene is pretty revealing, and it's designed to be that way. You know, not compared to today's standards, but you do see more than a lot of people would expect from films of this era. People have an unfair preconception that anything, you know, prior to when they became teenagers, all movies made were like G-rated. Or, you know, from the 60s, 70s, maybe start pushing it. But no, their nudity on film is as old as film. Just ask Edward Moybridge, who developed the first high-speed camera. Yes, these are the Halasan pre-code days. Yeah. Yeah, so... Wings, I would hesitate just because of that nudity. When your kids are ready for that, go for it. There's 
really nothing else objectionable in the film. Uh, Sunrise, I wouldn't do it until they are prepared to understand that cultures, that our culture did not understand the gender politics as well as we should have. Until they're prepared for that conversation, this is not a, a message and doesn't have the sort of the morals that I would recommend imparting on young children today. In any event, as we said, this is going to be a monthly podcast. So next month, Trey will be joining me again as we discuss the Broadway melody. So hope you'll join us again next month. Okay, and Trey, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me, Blaine. It was a pleasure. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.